This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We talk about this every year, but this year in particular, it seems as if it's more rampant. Uh, and we're talking about drinking and driving. And, and I know that the ride programs are out there, uh, and the warnings are out there, and the laws are out there, uh, but there seems to be an increase. I, I don't know why. I have no idea why. People just seem to ignore the obvious. Uh, Global TV did a survey with this yesterday. Ipsos Reid uh, did it on behalf of uh, Global TV. And they found that one in four Canadians admit to driving while legally drunk. One in four. Half of them think the limit's too low. But they drink anyway and get behind the wheel of the car. It's frightening to see this. And there have been a number of charges and accidents, actually, over the last three or four days right here in southern Ontario that have involved intoxication over the legal limit. So what do we need to do to curb this 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 behavior? This is this this is the question. I w- we're going to go to your phone calls and do that in a couple of minutes. Six four five thirty two twenty one nine zero five six four five three two two one star nine nine hundred, and of course the email b kelly at nine hundred chml dot com, and on Twitter at chml bill kelly. Have you? Drink? Have you have you got behind the wheel? Have you had one too many, or three too many, or four too many, and still got behind the wheel? Oh, I can handle this. Or no, I, maybe I can't, but I'm not going to get caught. I don't know what the mindset is when this happens, but it seems to be happening in spite of the fact that we know better. I think we do anyway. Before we go to your calls and, uh, and your thoughts about what we're going to do about this, you know, tougher penalties, bigger fines, jail time. Or do we do something about the legal limit? Maybe that number has to be adjusted. Let me uh, get Klaus Wagner into this uh, before we go to your calls, though. Klaus, of course, is Constable Traffic Specialist with Hamilton Police Services. Klaus, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Like always, Bill, thanks for letting me get the message out. Well, I, I don't know if anybody's listening, Klaus. Well, it was a, you know, to be honest, Bill, it was a small population. It was only 1,000 people, but... It is. It's the it's the lack of knowledge, as you and I have always talked, and and that's why I do so much public speaking throughout this province, and uh, to companies, and and I think the average person just doesn't realize how much alcohol point zero eight is. Maybe let's 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 educate people then that for those who don't seem to understand what exactly that is. Um, you know, and, and for everybody, it's different. I mean, uh, the, our body sizes, men, female, always makes a difference. A lot of people think, you know, it's the food thing. Well, if I have some food, no, all food does is slow down a little bit of the absorption rate that the alcohol gets into your body. You're still going to get that alcohol in your body. It might just take a little bit longer, and and that's the problem. You 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 know, you've been eat, eating and, and drinking at these Christmas functions, and everybody wants to have a good time. You know, and you think, well, okay, I'm fine. And then you get in your car and you have, as you know, Bill, we. we Nobody goes. Nobody lives close to where they work or, or they they celebrate. So they have a you know maybe a half hour, forty minute drive, and now they're behind the wheel, and now's when the alcohol is really starting to kick in, and uh, you know um, you know there's all kinds of penalties. You, you know my feeling about it. It's uh, my hashtag all this year has been the cost of courage. It takes a lot to tell somebody you know what stay over. You know, here, call a cab. Here, I'll give you a ride home. Whatever it might be, but it's hard to have that conversation with people. Is it because of the intoxication, or is it because they just don't care? I think it's. I think it's just that they. It's just maybe. And again, Bill, this is just the way I feel sometimes. 
is it just you know rebellious right now is it just our nature because of you know of everything that's out there it's you know that you know they want to fight against uh, whatever the system is as they call it sometimes especially the, the what disturbed me is the young people because a lot of those people a lot of those tw- you know those 20 year old uh you know 20 to 30 year olds those are the ones that have been have been going through the license system where they were not allowed any alcohol and uh you know that they think it's okay now that they've got a full license to to have some alcohol and drive you know that was what that was supposed to get you know instill in them that they can't get behind the wheel with alcohol in their system and and uh it's amazing when i go out to high schools and talk to kids and i say you know what's your how much alcohol are you allowed to have when you have a g1 or g2 license they go well zero and i go okay so that means one beer and they go no it means zero and then for them to think when they're 20s well it's okay to have two and a half or three beers and get behind the wheel right away, they don't realize the consequences. It's almost as if they, they've they gone through that process uh, with the, the, the zero tolerance, and now it's, a, oh, well, now we have to make up for lost time. Well, yeah, exactly. And and like I said, you know, um, but if you read that whole article, it goes on to when they, you know, that York, you know, and, and I've done it at your at your station. We did it with uh, Fresh and with Y108, uh, you know, where we had them have some drinks. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And at the end of the hour, and that was just three drinks in that hour, and both of them admitted, well, no, I wouldn't be getting high wheel now. And they were only blowing, you know, giving breath samples between, you know, 0.04 and 0.06, which is just in that area where you could lose your license, not a criminal charge. And that's just after three drinks. And, and those are and those were three measured drinks, as I always say, 12-ounce beer, five ounces of wine, 1.5 ounces of spirits. And you know yourself, Bill. We go out to these parties, you know, someone at home's mixing them, so you're maybe getting two, two and a half ounces in a shot, or you're having that, as I always say, that big uh, Ikea-sized glass of wine, you know, that's a fishbowl during the week yep. and a wine glass on the weekends, you know, or a big beer, a big tall boy. So, you are you know, you're having those three drinks in your head, but you're actually having six, and now they're getting behind the wheel, and that's where they're, you know, getting in collisions. We had four the other night. Now, one of them had alcohol in their system. They didn't get charged for over the limit, but they did lose their license for three days because they were over the, the provincial legal limit. So it shows you, you cannot drive. It just, it takes your abilities away. You made an interesting point too, because some people will say, and I've heard this, and I know you certainly have, and and, and I know even Chief uh, Gert, you know, before he became chief, I, he did the ride program for a while too. So, you, you guys have been right up front in getting this. But a lot of people say I've only had two drinks. Hey, well, how big were the drinks? I mean, that that's the operative uh, question here, isn't it? Oh, one hundred percent. That's what, like when I do, like I said, when I when I speak out out in uh, throughout the the province in our city, I always try to I run people through the people that we arrest on average since nineteen. 19- 90, the people we arrest for impaired driving give a blood alcohol level between 180 and 190, double the legal limit. It happens year in and year out. And when I go to conferences and speak with my fellow breath officers throughout not just not just Canada, North America, they say the same thing. These are not people that have just had a couple of drinks. These people that think they just had one or two over dinner, yeah, they're not the people we're stopping. We're talking about the people that had one or two over dinner, and that was, that was their plan, but then all of a sudden they stay a little bit later, and then someone brings a shot around, and then someone, they have another glass of wine, and the next thing they know, they're, they're punching those, uh, those high limits and getting behind the wheel and putting us all in danger. Well, I mean, I, I can think right off the bat here of two or three restaurants. I mean, you know, they give you 
well, first of all, beer now comes in tall boys. 100%. And, uh, and even the, the mugs that you can buy in some restaurants, I mean, some of these things are humongous. They're, they're the size of a milk pitcher. Well, it's, it's, and that's how I explain it. When, when people show up at these places, you know, what's on top? And then the, when sometimes the first thing the server will say, our, our schooner or our tall boy is on special tonight. Okay, give me one of those. And or they have a you know they have a mixed spirit drink or like I said they have um, you know not the house glass they have the you know the the restaurant's name glass which is like nine ounces you know or almost ten ounces and that's a double shot and you have two or three of those even in an hour now you've had six but you're saying to yourself well I've only had a couple but you've actually had six drinks the. Uh... <laughs> It's, it's the mindset that bothers me, and you, you mentioned demographics just a little while ago, Klaus, and, and the global TV survey that was done uh, was, was rather disturbing and, and very enlightening. Uh, millennials, almost 40% of the youngest cohort polled said that it's okay to have a few drinks and then drive home, even if you might be legally impaired. Uh, 2.5 drinks, they say, driving home, that's fine, but well, that essentially puts you at the limit, if not over the limit. Uh, and, and those are the ones, as you sh- said, that should really know better because they've probably gone through that license thing where there's zero tolerance. So it's not as if they don't know the message. They're just ignoring it. Oh, exactly. And like I said, is, is it the pushback, the, the, you know, the thought nowadays about, you know, we have to push the system a little bit. I, I, I'm not sure. Um, uh, you know, we've talked before. I have two children in that age group, and, you know, they've been hearing it from me since they were little kids. I've, I've talked about this, and, and, you know, they, you know, they, they call no problem. They text me. I pick them up. There's never been an issue that way. Or they just don't. They make, as we say here at the Hamilton Police Service, they make the plan before they even leave. They will call me before they leave and say, Dad, we're going out tonight. Can you drive us over to the party? And, and they've made the decision there. And that's where you have to. Because once you've had a few drinks, you don't make the right decision. And, and I can prove this by saying the, the average person, might the decision might be made because, well, I didn't leave enough money for taxi. So, and I don't want to leave my car here. But we've seen you know, uh, celebrities and pro athletes that have lots of money that still get behind the wheel and drive because the alcohol makes the choice for them and they make the bad decision. What about incentives? I mean, I, I, you know, you guys uh, that are out there in the front line, you, you, uh, you don't make the rules, you enforce the rules. Correct. But, but you certainly see uh, the effect that those rules are having. And, and in situations like this when we're looking for ideas, uh, what, what do we incentivize this? I mean, you know, some places I know, some establishments, licensed establishments, uh, will say, okay, if you're the designated driver, you uh, you get your your pop or your water or whatever for free. You don't have to pay for it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe you have to ramp that up. Maybe they eat dinner for free or something. I don't know. But and I'm because I'm not advocating let's not drink alcohol. I mean, you know, everybody loves to have a glass of wine or a exactly. beer sometime. You know, especially it's. You know, you're going to be seeing people you usually don't see around the holiday season, and, and that's usually what happens in these things. But there's somebody has to be a designated driver, and, and I don't even hear that happening much anymore. Yeah. And the designated driver cannot have one drink, because you know how many times I've arrested the designated driver <laughs> who, who thinks the way this article says, because the first thing they'll say to me is when I pull them out of the car and do a roadside, because maybe I don't think they're impaired, but I'm checking to see if they're in that worn range, as we call it, that where you just lose your license and then end up blowing a fail on the instrument. And they say, that's impossible, but I only had a couple. Or, that's impossible, I was a designated driver, I only had a couple. And I just look at them and I said, a designated driver, zero means zero. 
because best laid plans, I say that to kids all the time. A lot of kids think, well, if I only have one beer at the party because I'm not allowed to have any, but I'm going to be at the party for five hours, I'm okay. The problem is they have one, and then human nature says, well, I'm, okay, I can have one more because I'm still going to be here till 11 o'clock. And then all of a sudden... Yeah, it'll be out of my system by then. Exactly, but then all of a sudden, mom calls, they need the car back. Or one of the kids at the party says, well, can you just drive me down to the store because you have a license? And they kind of, oh, okay, well... And then they get caught because, especially young drivers, you know, and we know young alcohol affects young people. That's why they have these these conditions on their license, and they make, you know, they run a stop sign, they or they, they slide around a little bit because they, you know, they're having a hard enough time when they're sober keeping the car between between the lines, and and then it screws up their life. Bill, if I tell you, some people, if I could have them sit at my desk when people come in after their car is impounded for seven days, and I tell them it's going to be $840 to get the car out, you should see the look on some of these their faces because that's maybe when reality hits, but that was when the decision was should have been made seven what, days earlier. What about stiffer penalties? Would that help? Again, you know, you, you can hear people saying that they want to lower the limit. In Sweden, the legal limit is .02, Bill, .02. That's, that's essentially one drink, isn't it? Exactly, and... And any public vehicle has an interlock device, so any bus driver, train operator, airplane pilot has to blow into it before they start their shift to make sure that they, they're okay to drive. Yeah, well, that's the professionals is something altogether different, but that's just as troubling. I, mean, you know, I remember just this past spring we went over to Scotland for a week and uh, had a wonderful time, and uh, I won't mention well, the airline that we flew. But the, the very next day we get home, we open the newspaper, and the two of the pilots, not in our flight, but in that same airline, were intoxicated yeah. uh, at the airport. And, and they were ready to fly, and somebody noticed it, and they, they blew into the thing, and uh, no, we'll, we'll get somebody else to fly the plane. Uh, it happens, though. I mean, professionals get involved in this, too. It just This is this is right across the spectrum, isn't it? Oh, in any business. I, I You know, I'm not, you know, Bill, you and I, like I said, we've talked hundreds of times, and, and I'm very, very truthful about everything. Every, you know, we all have some addictions and things that, that, things that happen, but, you know, um, trying to blame somebody else is, is the wrong thing to do. You ha- we have to deal with it ourselves, and we can't say, well, let's lower this, because like I said, I think the biggest thing is education, and that's why I do so much public speaking out there with, with people, to, so they can understand actually how much alcohol it is, because most of them, as the, as the York Regional Police in this article show people, when they actually got them up to a blood level of 0.7 to 0.8, a lot of them said, okay, well, I wouldn't drive with this much alcohol in me, and we went, but you just said you would. Yeah. You know what I mean? But they don't realize... Uh, you know how how they're going to feel at that blood alcohol level, or the excuse that I'm sure you've heard a million times as well is, well, I can handle it. I, I know that's point eight's the level, but I can handle. It. I don't, I'm I'm a big guy. I'm an experienced drinker. I can handle this stuff. Yeah, and uh, you know, and especially nowadays too, with especially with the the new laws that are going to be taking effect there with uh, marijuana in the new year. You know, a lot of people are on prescription drugs, you know, just for for regular health, and they follow their prescription drugs properly, but at this time of the year, they still want to have their drink, and it's one of the first things they're told is not to have alcohol. They don't know how it's going to react, and that's the ones we're stopping that are showing high signs of impairment because of the the combination of a drug and an alcohol. It's not always an illegal drug. It's that prescription drug that tells you not to to have alcohol with it. Well, Klaus, I wish I could... uh... tell you that, look, it's just going to be a boring holiday season. You know, the, the bride programs aren't going to find anybody, but you and I both know that's not the case. But as you say, the more we talk about it, hopefully maybe that'll sink in with some people and uh, maybe even save a few lives. Yeah. 
and like I said, it's just making that decision before you before you leave the house. You should be already planning what you're doing for New Year's. If you know you're going out right now is when you should be saying, you know, we're going to be staying over or, you know, um, uh, making sure we have money for a cab or we're going to all together uh, get together and share a cab or we're going to take, you know, take the city transit. I mean, everybody's trying. The city's trying. You know, taxi companies try. Everybody's trying to make it as easy as possible, but you have to make ultimately a decision before you put the alcohol in your body. Klaus, thanks so much for taking the time for us today. Really appreciate it. Bill, to you, your family, and all your listeners, the best of the holiday season. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The uh, construction on the Burlington Go Station is not expected to be completed anytime soon, as it turns out. Uh, and it's causing an awful lot of frustration, uh, especially when you consider that this probably should have been done about three years ago, yet it still sits there. And while there are delays and some finger-pointing and excuses coming up and on and on it goes, uh, probably nobody more frustrated than Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing, who uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Mr. Mayor, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Yeah, you're most welcome, Bill. Good morning. You uh, asked for a ghost station for Christmas, and I guess you're not going to get it. Uh, not this Christmas, anyway. <laughs> Hopefully, some Christmas. That's a, that was the problem, Mister Mayor. You weren't specific. You didn't say That's which right. year. All right, what's what's going on here? Well, it, it, you know, the, the the whole issue has had lots of attention uh, with regard to uh, the Auditor General recently, and her report mm-hmm. uh, uh, made some high level remarks about the the lack of um, uh, proper management and oversight with regard to some of the. Uh, projects that are going on, and uh, and she uh, used Burlington as a great example. So I guess that is the issue. The Auditor General has more uh, access to all the information and, and has analyzed all the projects that have been going on, and that's her conclusion, that there's been a lack of oversight and, and with regard to uh, the Burlington Go Station. Well, uh, this is the song that we've heard before, of course. Uh, w- w- Hamilton, it went to do with the stadium that went on and on, and and this must conjure up uh, some some ugly images of, of of memories gone by with the peer development and the stuff that uh, that you were saddled with too. You got that resolved finally, but it just nothing seems to go smoothly here. Is is it because there are too many chiefs involved in this? Well, I, you know, I'm going to share a bit of a perspective here, Bill. Sure. And and, and with regard to these uh, these situations, you know, you have contractual leverage sometimes, you know, because there's performance bonds and then there's penalties for being late and so on and so forth, that you hope to have some impact and hope to hold people's feet to the fire as far as making sure that things are progressing in a, in a timely fashion. But one of the challenges with government is the procurement process, and I think it might be of interest to your listeners at some point for you to actually bring on a procurement expert to talk about procurement and compare it to, you know, from the public sector to the private sector. But you look at the fact that, you know, with regard to the public sector, and I'm sure this was the case for the Burlington Go Station, you ask a, a bunch of contractors, you put it out there publicly, whoever's interested in bidding on the job, you need to pre-qualify. So the contractors submit, uh, you know, some information about their history and their experience and so on and so forth. And then, you know, a certain number of the firms are pre-qualified, which means when you put it out to tender, um, you're going to choose the lowest bidder. So you may have six or eight or ten firms that are pre-qualified, that meet the, the, meet the standard to be able to, uh, to bid on the project. But then, of course, you put it out, and it's always the cheapest bidder that gets the that gets the uh, to do the work. Is it always the cheapest? Is that the priority? Well, not, not, not necessarily. Not necessarily, but in, when it's pre-qualified, I'm not sure exactly what happened in this case. 
Um, but but typically that's the way it works. It's the cheapest bidder that gets the gets the um, to do the project. You know, assuming that they pre-qualified and they've gone through that pre-qualification mm-hmm. process. So what's missing there, though, is relationship. In my view, is that in the private sector, if you're uh, an independent uh, entrepreneur or business owner, you can do business with whoever you want to do business with. So whether it be IT or construction, you know, you choose a particular contractor and you've got your own methodology. But one of the things that is just inherent in the process for the private sector is you establish relationships with people that you're going to hire to do the work. So when things go wrong, you have a relationship that you can lean on because it's much better to lean on a relationship than it is to lean on contractual provisions, which aren't obviously used as effectively as they might. So I think that's a challenge for government, period, and at some point, it might be interesting to have a procurement specialist on your show. Well, because I heard this debate all the time when I was on council here in Hamilton as well, because there's always somebody who is upset with the process. And and you start asking about those priorities, like is price the only factor here? Well, it's you know we have a duty to the taxpayers, et cetera, and I yeah, I, I totally understand that. Yeah. But I think anybody, Mr. Mayor, whether you're buying a car or buying a ghost station, uh, you you wouldn't probably mind paying a few extra bucks if you knew that you were going to get quality for it. But you don't really get that that opportunity in this situation, do you? Well, often you're, you're driven to the, the lowest cost solution, and even the system of pre-qualification, where you you know you can get some good contractors in there. Um, you know, maybe the system isn't as 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 thorough as it should be, as far as you know, getting the the people that are capable of delivering the uh, the project. Let's 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 talk about who's involved in this, because I know one of the great frustrations that with the stadium, the Pan Am Stadium here in Hamilton. Uh, was the fact that, again, it was a, a, an arm's-length government agency. In that case, it was Infrastructure Ontario, not, not Metrolinx. Uh, but they basically said, you guys just sit over there and watch, because and, and, we're going to do this. We'll, we'll do the pre-qualifying. We'll decide who's going to be the contractor on this. And, and you guys, you don't have any say in this technically. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming that's the same thing that happened with you with the GO station? Oh, absolutely. It, it, it's, it's, you know, GO stations are run by my Metrolinx, and it's uh, completely their project. The city has absolutely nothing to do about it. So it's, uh, it's Metrolinx's deal, and, uh, you know, you hope that when they build things in your community uh, that they have the right processes in place to make sure that there's good contract management and good oversight uh, with regard to any construction that takes place in, 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 uh, in your area. You know, I think one of the challenges for Metrolinx is that they're expanding so quickly. They're spending billions and billions of dollars, uh, tens of billions of dollars, um, on well, you know, on on highly needed uh, transportation infrastructure, and you know, they're expanding so quickly, and they have so many different projects on the go. I think it's it may be a challenge to keep on top of every single project in the way that uh, they should. Well, and that was a concern that I think a lot of people have raised about about LRT, for instance. Uh, which obviously is again under the purview of Metrolinx, and they got the Ottawa project, they got the KW project, they got the Toronto area projects, uh, and you got to wonder. Well, you know, you can't you can't be in sixteen different places at once, uh, and that comes down to to what you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation about oversight, doesn't it? Oh no, absolutely, absolutely. No, it it is a challenge, and you think of some of these projects, and certainly you know the LRT in Hamilton. Um, you know, you've never done LRT in Hamilton before, so you don't have the experience to, to rely on. So you know that when that project starts, there will be issues that come up along the way that have to be managed. Um, then you have, to, you have to problem solve on a regular basis because nothing ever goes as smoothly as you think it's going to go because uh, you haven't built that exact, uh, you know, same project before. So you don't have the experience. So 
you know, you have experience building other other projects, but just because you built some other project that you know may have some uh, similarity doesn't mean you have experience with that particular project that's underway. So, um, yeah, there's nothing nothing simple about some of this work. This this reminds me of a conversation you and I had a, a few weeks ago. I think when you were during the town hall when you were in studio here, Mr. Mayor. Uh, and it, it was about governments and, and the allocation of money and, and, and programs. And, and I know the frustration that, that the mayors of the, right across this country have had for quite some time is, is that very philosophy and that, that formula that has been used. In other words, we'll tell you where the money is going to go. We'll tell you what, uh, what to spend it on, and we'll tell you how it's going to be done. Uh, and you told me when you had the meetings, uh, you and the other mayors with uh, the prime minister some time ago up in Ottawa, they, they've essentially turned that around and said, no, you – you're the mayor of Burlington. You know more, more about Burlington than I do. So we'll we'll allocate the money for you for the worthwhile projects, but you guys are going to have a say in exactly how that's going to be spent. Would you like to see that sort of approach happen with these projects too? I have to think about that in, in more detail because if if you look at the fact that, you know, the city of Burlington has a certain skill set and our staff to do certain projects and so on and so forth, and then you know, are we going to get into the project management business, uh, you know, with oversight for Metrolinx projects in our own community? I mean, maybe we would like to have that have that authority and have that, uh, you know, handed to us, but we obviously have some extra cost that would be incurred just for the project management that maybe we could do it better. Maybe that's actually not a bad idea, Bill, that you're floating. Maybe we could do it better. We can ask for Metrolinx to give us the money that we can manage the project. I'm not sure if we'd want that or not. Well, sure. I mean, there's that that's a responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. We get that. But I heard that, uh, Mr. Mayor, from a lot of people on city council uh, during the stadium debacle that uh, was occurring here in Hamilton. They just, they saw what was going on, and they felt helpless. And and that's maybe one of the worst feelings think, you can yeah, have. Is to yeah. and, and you, I'm sure, feeling the same way about the exactly. ghost. Are you? Exactly. Yeah, you, yeah. No, you're right. And you know, at least a seat at the table, so you can at least comment and say, "Wait a second, here, what's going on." Exactly. I mean, we have we have great project management staff, and uh, you know maybe they would be an asset to the project. I would say they would be. Well, uh, the, uh, the pier that we talked about a couple of minutes ago is a, is a great example of that. I mean, you know, you you got the right people in there, and they they took over the project, and and bingo, you got it finished. And you'd like to think the same thing could happen here, and because what we're talking about here, because I know that you've been in contact with with uh, other media, the Star, and other places about this. Because as you say, when the Auditor General writes about this. Uh, <laughs> There's always so many wonderful, positive things about Burlington in the in the media. You know, is is what the best place to live, etc. No, second best, I guess, behind Ottawa. But uh, this is all that you're in the media for the wrong reasons now. But it, and it's not your fault, and that's the frustration, I guess, you're feeling. It, it, we have a high level of frustration with this project. I mean, the project commenced in in uh, in 2012, in the fall of 2012. The initial expectation was it would be two years, and uh, the most recent up, uh, update from Metrolinx about when the construction is now expected to end the answer is construction will continue into 2017 so that's not being very definitive well and that's the thing is this is not like you're a couple of weeks overdue here i mean this is a full well three or almost three years now going on three years that they're behind and and uh, and without any explanation really uh you know they're, they're floating the idea about yeah it was an exceptionally cold winter uh, but you know that that's something that always gets floated, and you know it's it's one of those standard answers to to just about everything. But is anybody looking into exactly why it's taking this long? It's not as if you know they've uncovered something during the dig that they, that's thrown them back. Because if or if they have, they haven't told anybody about it. Well, I think the Auditor General's conclusion is is probably the appropriate one that there's a lack of uh, you know appropriate 
uh, contract management and, and oversight. Um, and according to Metrolinx, they, they are uh, in touch with the, the um, contractor every day. They have regular site visits to see the progress or lack thereof. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's you know, a relative term, isn't it? You know, according to Metrolinx, they're doing what they're supposed to supposed to do. But no, it's. I mean, all these excuses are not. Uh, you know, don't provide us with much comfort as to when the station's going to be finished. Is there any indication from the way that you talked about the procurement process a few minutes ago, Mr. Mayor, uh, and penalty clauses and things of this nature? Uh, are there, what are the ramifications right now? I mean, this company that's that's almost three years behind right now. Uh, doesn't seem to be suffering as a result of this. I, I don't know what the contract is, uh, but, you know, I know some people have raised the idea, well, if these guys aren't doing the job, then fire the contractor. But apparently Metrolinx doesn't want to do that either. Well, they looked into that, and to fire the contractor and start with somebody new would cost them a, a lot more money. It would take longer, of course, is, is their explanation. So they want to stick with, you know, the contractor that they uh, that they have. I mean, there may be some, some penalty clauses in the contract for delays, but they're they're never unlimited. There's always a maximum, is my understanding, and I'm, I'm sure that would be the case here. There's a maximum uh, penalty for delays, and and of course, you know, you may have a, in the contract that there's a, a penalty for each day of delay or month of delay or whatever the contract says. But there's another thing to collect on it. Um, so you know, uh, the relationship is such an important thing, and I'm going to go back to my initial comment that the public procurement process. Uh, may not lead to uh, the most effective um, result as far as far as who you hire because you're, you're you're forced to go with the lowest price often and you may not have a have a proper relationship you don't have opportunity to build a relationship uh, with the contractor so when things go wrong you're on the same side do you do you know much about this company bonfield um, they've built schools in Burlington. They're actually building Union Station right now. Um, so they've got obviously they have uh, they have a long uh, you know track record of successful completion of, of various projects. So from what I know, they've been around for a while, and they're uh, they're a very reputable firm. Well, you have to wonder maybe that the same thing that you talked about about Metrolinx themselves and the fact that you know when you've got so many different projects going on. Uh, which ones are the priorities, and, and you know, are they getting the, the, the most effective due diligence when it comes to these sorts of things? I mean, that's a question I think uh, that could be asked here. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, the, the you know, provincial government's got a big uh, big objective as far as their investments in in, uh, in public transit, and you know, it's needed. It's been needed for for generations, and you know, now it's happening. But boy, you have to make sure those dollars are invested properly um, because there's a lot of money in play here. And there's so many different projects, and they all have to align with each other. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good to come up with a big plan. The challenge often is the implementation of that plan. Well, and this is supposed to be the, the next stage of a, of a very you know, successful story, the fact that ridership is up on go and, and that people are gravitating to public transit. And I know that's a, a priority for you and for many people in the city of Burlington. Uh, which is why this thing was even talked about and, and, and implemented in the first place. It's got to be awfully frustrating for, for the, your, your citizens there to see this thing dragging on the way it is because, this, to, to use a marketing term, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a group of people out there that are going to jump onto these trains and start using this thing as soon as you get it done. 
Oh, and, and they already are, despite the delays, yeah. despite the inconveniences, they are. One of the challenges we have is the, the fact that most of our buses go, and the GO buses uh, go to something that was created on the north side of the GO station while the construction is going on on the south. But it's, we wanted to go to the south, but it's taken so long uh, because of all the delays that our buses, you know, have to go out of their way each and every time they go to the north side of the station as opposed to the normal route, which would be on the south side of the station, it probably takes five or seven minutes um, longer uh, because of the, the process of the construction. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The suspect in the attack at the Berlin Christmas market was shot dead near Milan, Italy earlier this morning, ending the international manhunt but leaving many questions unanswered. Joining us to talk about this is David Vidsett, uh, former Scotland Yard investigator and, of course, terrorism expert, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. David, thank you for the time. Uh, great to have you with us again today. Hello, Bill. How are you? I'm well. What have you heard about this incident? Uh, well, uh, what we know is that, um, that it was a routine uh, police check of some description. They saw um, uh, Amory getting out of a vehicle and decided to go and speak to him. I don't, we don't know why yet. Um, as they went to try and speak to him, um, he pulled a gun from his backpack and began firing at them. And a, a fairly rookie police officer, which is nine months in the in the police here, has shot back and killed him. Uh, and you know, it, it's a really, it's a it's a great thing for it to happen to have found him to prevent him carrying out further attacks. Uh, it's just very unfortunate that he's he's been killed. Do we know? Uh, that's an interesting part. We heard it was a street check, uh, but but we was there any rationale of why, why the officers targeted him for for the questioning? No, I, 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 again, I don't know. Um, I, with a lot of these things, what happens is is that it was three a.m. in the morning. Um, some if a car pulls up somewhere and it's in a sort of a fairly suburban area, um, and the police are sort of looking. Um, it would be okay and sort of normal routine for us to go over and speak to them and say, uh, you know, what, what are you up to and, and why are you out and about at this time of the day? Um, and I, I'm just guessing, but I think that's probably what's happened. And they just you know, got lucky and, and realised it's him and when he's been shooting back. You uh, raised on Twitter earlier this morning a very valid point uh, that... that because this this is rather coincidental, David, that uh, there's a debate going on, I know, in the U.K. and certainly right here in, in uh, Ontario and in Canada and in many jurisdictions in the States uh, about stop and, and, and questioning. Uh, and, and there's a number of jurisdictions right now that are starting to pull back and putting a lot of pressure on police to not do that sort of thing. Uh, here's an example of, of how effective it can be. Yeah, uh, and here in the U.K., um, we've had Theresa May, who's now Prime Minister, she was the Home Secretary and um, was previously directly responsible for the police, and she had an awful lot of pressure put on her um, to curtail the use of stopping search powers and stopping and speaking to people. And I'm a massive fan of it. I mean, it's something that when I was in the police, I used to do an awful lot of. Um, you really, it, you cannot gain the sort of intelligence that you gain, and, and, and really getting lucky with things like this it just doesn't happen if you don't do it. Yes, you, you might speak to a lot of people who, who, you know, have done nothing wrong and have got nothing to say to you apart from have a great day. But very occasionally you're going to happen across somebody that is a terrorist suspect or have got a boot full of drugs or a boot full of guns in their car. And, and it really, really is an important tool for all police services to use. 
Well, and to put this in context, I mean, there was a, a, an internet or an, a, a European-wide, I guess, manhunt for this guy. So, I mean, I'm sure the police, even this this young cop that just, uh, as you say, has only been on the job for a few months right now, I'm sure they were alerted to this before they started their shift that day. Well, I, you say that, but it's just not it's not usually what happens. We, you know, we deal with local issues. Um, you know, we're localized police services, and it's the same it's the same when you go to any other country. You know, you, you have local intelligence. You don't really expect to be um, coming face to face with uh, with somebody who's carried out a, uh, a terror attack in another country. It's quite unusual for that to happen. Um, but you know, you've got to be prepared for it. And, and it looks like they they were. And very fortunately, no one else has been killed. I understand this police officer has been injured, and he's, but he's not life-threatening injuries, and he's been in the hospital. Um, but we, we can't get away from the fact that we, we've got to, to protect our, our borders, to protect the, you know our, our citizens in our countries. We've got to carry on doing this routine, what I call bread and butter police work. The first question among many that, that remain unanswered is, how did he get from Berlin to Milan, Italy? Well, that's, that's, uh, they found uh, some train tickets on him which suggested he travelled from France by train into Italy. Um, so you would guess um, that he may have travelled from Germany uh, by train as well. And, and here in Europe, and, and certainly in the UK, we don't have uh, robust uh, search regimes like, uh, like the, some, some countries do. Um, so he could have quite easily um, travelled with his gun quite scarily when you think about it, travelled with his gun uh, on a train from Germany then into France and then back into Italy again. Um, we think he was travelling into Italy because that's somewhere that he knows, somewhere he spent time uh, and, and somewhere that he could probably quite happily disappear back into a community where he's not, he's not going to be using his telephone, not going to be using the internet, not going to be using bank accounts. So the electronic surveillance that the security services and the police put into, into play to try and find these people when we're looking for them is that they're totally ineffective when they're not connected in that way. Um, it's quite clear that he's been in contact with somebody um, because uh, the um, IS news agency has broadcast a video of him pledging alliance to them. Um, so uh, I would guess that, he, that he's given that to somebody and somebody's transmitted that on his behalf. So again, it plays into the fact that we're not looking for, uh, we're not talking about a lone wolf attacker, as, as a lot of people think. This is somebody that's probably connected to a network, um, somebody that's just traveling back to a network and a network is going to protect him back in Milan. You mentioned he'd spent some time over there. He'd done some time there too. He was, he was incarcerated a few times in Milan, wasn't he? That's right. Apparently, he left. Uh, she left Tunisia just after the, what was known as the Arab Spring here, um, which is when uh, there was an uprising and they, they sort of pro-democracy demonstrations all across um, a lot of countries in sort of North Africa and the Middle East. Um, and he left shortly after that in 2011 and spent some time uh, in a refugee camp. Um, he claimed asylum when he arrived in Italy. Uh, got into some trouble, set fire to refugee camp. Uh, ended up spending three years in prison in um, in Italy, uh, but somehow has found his way into Germany and the way where he tried to claim asylum again. And I think there's a there's a lot of questions that which the EU needs to ask itself about how easy it is for these people to move around. I mean, not just when we talk about him travelling from from not just one country, but moving through several countries armed with a gun in his pocket on a on a normal train. 
but also how easy it is for somebody to claim asylum in one country and then and then just when it all goes wrong in that country to go and move somewhere else to reinvent themselves with a new identity and, and then just claim asylum in a second country. And there's a, there's a lot of problems uh, that need addressing when you look at what's happened here. We talked about this the other day when this story first broke, David, but uh, and now that we know a little more, more about this individual and, and especially about his time in Milan, uh, as you mentioned, he'd, he'd done time in prison uh, for violent crimes, and was, we were told he was a bad actor even when he was in prison, uh, threatening uh, other, uh, other prisoners. Uh, yet the, the Italian authorities, just as we talked about the German authorities the other day, the Italian authorities say, yeah, but we didn't see any evidence that he was being radicalized. Uh, yeah, but... That's hardly the point. The fact of the matter is, is this guy is, is a convicted criminal and, and with prone to violence and, and armed and dangerous, yet he seems to be able to freely move from one country to another. Yeah, and it is a, it's a big problem, but the, the issue there is, and, and a, lot of, um, a lot of people will say, well, look, he's, a, he's, cl- he's come over to Italy, he's come to the EU, and, he's, and he said, I, I, I need asylum, you need to protect me, because if I go back to my own country, I'm going to be subject to violence and, and possibly death. That's, that's what a lot of these people say when, when they arrive on the EU shores. Um, and, and quite clearly now, looking back, we can see that, that is, that's a lot of old nonsense. His family, you know, are, they're, you know they're not, none of his family are suffering, they're not being persecuted by the government. Um, but the problem is, is when, when you have a refugee that turns up and then says, I've got problems in my own country, I'm going to be subject to violence or death, you need to take me in and look after me. Um, how do you sort the real, uh, the real refugees from, from the bogus ones? And quite clearly, Amri was a bogus refugee. But how do, you, how do you sort that out? And then when you talk about deporting somebody for uh, violent crime... You know, are we going to be deporting somebody back for perhaps, you know, they've set fire to somewhere, deporting someone back to, to a certain death in their own country? And that's the problem we have with refugee status. And then what do you do with these people once they have to commit crime? And we find out that they're, they're the wrong side of um, the wrong side of the law and the wrong type of people or the wrong people we want in our country. Um, that, that's the real issue here is, is how we address that. And I, I don't have the answers because I don't know, because if... if you know, somebody's involved in a violent crime, yes, everyone will shout, we've got to deport them. But then if, if they go back to their own country and they're then killed by their government, was that the right thing to do? So there's a whole host of questions um, that need answering. And we need a, we need to decide on, on, on our own sort of moral values on this, really. Are we happy to just kick people out of the country once they've committed a crime to whatever circumstances they're due to go back in? Or, or do we try and think about, well, you know, what, what are the alternatives and what can we do? Speaking of questions, I, I was watching some of the social media response after this story broke earlier this morning, David, and, and a lot of the usual answers, you know, good riddance, uh, he had it coming and things of this nature. But, but again, you raised some interesting uh, points on, in, on, on your Twitter feeds. Uh, the, you'd prefer that this guy was taken alive because there's an awful lot of questions that you'd like to ask this fellow. Absolutely. Uh, the, the problem is when anyone dies um, like this, and, and you know, there, there's a part of me that, that has some of that feeling as well. Oh, sure. You know, he can't. He can't. He can't kill anyone else, and he can't harm anyone else. And, and the, you know, he, he can't radicalise anyone else when he's in a prison now, because that's that's the danger of of having these people in prison when they, when they've been radicalised themselves. Is, is that someday meet up with other people in prison and they become like a you know almost like a poison to other people and radicalise other people. So there's a part of me that agrees with them. 
However, there's also um, the professional side of me, uh, uh, police officer side of me, that says um, there are a lot of questions uh, about how this, um, you know, miraculously, this identity document has turned up in the cab of this vehicle, which has enabled the German police to very, very quickly hone, hone in on a, on a target, as it were, and sort of say, this is the man we're looking for. Now, I also understand that there are some fingerprints inside the cab of this lorry, um, but there's an awful lot of questions which, which I'd like answered. Is, is that, you know, was he with somebody else? You know, who else acted with him? Who supported him? Um, and all of those sorts of things. And some of them we might be able to find out without him. Uh, but, you know, he, there's, there's lots of things that, to my mind, is was he, was he willingly in this lorry? As, as an actor to terrorism and, and him drawing a gun in Italy and shooting at police officers and shouting, you know, God is great and all those sort of things. Uh, I mean, a lot of people will immediately jump to it was definitely him and he was definitely the actor, uh, you know, that was in the in the vehicle and, and ran over all those people. But there's a lot of questions which, which, you know, in a lot of situations where that might not have been the case. And it could explain why his fingerprints were in the cab. It could explain why he's he decided to shoot a police officer. You know, if, if his identity document has been has been dropped when you know he's he's been involved in something, some kind of duress inside the cab as well. So finding these people alive, it gives us a much better opportunity to sort of um, find out exactly what's happened and and, and to question them and, and to talk to them. Uh, and, and from a, from a professional perspective, that's much better. Um, but uh, you know, by the same token. It, it, a lot of people will say, well, no, we're, we're happy that was him. His fingerprints were in there. Um, and and he, he was, you know, he's pledged to lights to IS. Uh, and therefore, we think he's guilty and we're happy with that. Um, I'd like to know more. Uh, and, and I always like to catch them alive as I possibly can. Well, and especially you know, the question you asked us the other day when when this first story broke was, you know, is this guy part of a network? Are there people planning something else right now? We we don't know that at this stage. Is, is the trail cold now because he's dead? Well, no, of course not. I mean, we, but it depends on, on how um, uh, technically savvy this guy was um, and, and how, how easily he's been able to avoid being detected by the police and the security service in wherever he's been, you know, whichever country he's been in. Now, bearing in mind that we know that there are at least three countries in Europe which are involved in this investigation now. Germany, where, where the offence took place or where the, where the scene of the crime was. Italy, where he's been shot dead. And he's also travelled to France. Um, so there's an awful lot of, of possible opportunities where, where some intelligence services might, might have some information on him and might have some data about his telephone use and internet use and, and things like that. And, and they might be able to trace retrospectively who he has been contacting him and, and, and do something from there. You know, go and search those premises, go and arrest those people, and that's what we do. Um, but a lot of these people, they are quite highly trained and they know how, how it is that we collect telephone data and internet data and all of those sorts of things and they avoid using them, avoid doing them and they have face-to-face contacts. Um, so it's, you know, it's very difficult to try and uh, often retrospectively go back and see what they've been doing. Uh, this is a troubling story, clearly, and, and clear, this is not the end of it. Obviously, there's going to be a lot more investigation going on. Uh, but yeah. to your point uh, uh, about the ongoing uh, work that's being done by uh, law enforcement authorities, uh, I, I guess a, a happier story of, of, in Melbourne, where a, a, apparently a, a plot was thwarted before it actually uh, got underway. It, it could have been an ugly day in, in Melbourne on Christmas Day, but apparently they've made arrests down there. 
yeah, exactly. I, I don't know a great deal about that story. I saw it this morning. I think we, we're still waiting for some information on it. But yeah, there, there's an awful lot of activity um, going on amongst the terrorist networks over the Christmas period. Um, and you know, being it's a it's a Christian festival, you know, Christmas and things like that, and and so a lot of the terror networks are, are looking to try and make statements and, and and do things over the Christmas period, and we've all got to be sort of vigilant uh, and and just report what we see to the police, you know, even if it doesn't, you're not sure about it, you're not sure about why this, why somebody's parked in a car outside a location, it's worth ringing up, you know, two men look a bit odd sitting in that car outside your house, it's worth ringing up and letting the police know about it because that's exactly how. Amory has been been caught and and uh, and, and shot dead uh, yesterday. Clearly, there are there, there are cells that are working around the world though that uh, that are are being monitored. I mean, obviously the one in Australia and 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 you alluded to the fact that even in in the case uh, with Amory here that that whether or not he had been in contact clearly with uh, with ISIS, but at the same time we don't know how extensive uh, and intimate that that relationship was. No, I, I think that. Um, the, we're learning a lot about ISIS as, as, as some of these attacks are, are coming out. Um, there was a, you know, there was a perception early on that they everything was done by the internet um, and it was all done by remote control. Uh, but I think as, as time goes on, and when we look back at the, the attacks in Belgium, the attacks in Paris, um, the, the, the thwarted attacks that have happened, you know, guy with the gun on the train, all of those sorts of things that have happened over the last sort of 18 months here in Europe. Um, I think we're starting to realise that there is a much more higher degree of control, central control from from IS in Syria and Iraq, much like there was with that with Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not it's not such a very different beast that we're dealing with here, um, and, and it does act in very similar ways. But I think they they've upped their game, and, and, and the security services and the police they aren't picking up on this electronic communication or whatever whatever form of communication they're using. Um, and instead of um, catching these people upstream and catching them early, we're, we're having to sort of play catch up all the time once, once we know who these people are and what they've done. And then we're trying to pull, pull it to pieces and work out how it's, how it's operated, who's been involved in it uh, and, and where they got their information from. So as, as time goes on, I think I mean, IS is, is, is very similar to al-Qaeda. With that in mind and, and with that the evolution that seems to be occurring. Do you get the sense they're getting stronger then, David? I, d- I don't. I don't think they're getting any stronger. I don't think their threats changed remarkably. Um, you know, the, the names of the groups have changed, um, but it's, it's much like um, trying to sort of tell the difference, isn't it, between Pepsi and Coca-Cola? Um, they all have a very similar outlook, and they all operate in a very similar way. Just the names of the groups are different. I, I, don't, I don't think they're getting stronger. Um, you know, their, their base in, in Syria and Iraq is slowly being eroded. Um, I think the difficulty we have, certainly here in Europe, is, is how many of these uh, fighters and, and jihadis that are intent on causing trouble. Do you know how many of, are, of them are, are in Europe? How many have come in as refugees, um, and how many have used the refugee route to, to sort of infiltrate their way back into their into their country of origin? Um, and are just sitting there waiting for an opportunity. That's that's the danger that we have, um, and I think that makes makes them slightly different to Al Qaeda. Um, then they're, they're, they're slightly more. You know, you look at them a bit more like a sleeper cell, and they're just sort of sitting waiting. And, and I think that's a danger for us. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.